welcome to the movie of the month club where you can expect a fresh pick delivered to your ears every month my name is Genevieve Radosti and I started movie of the month club with the goal to encourage community understanding and enthusiasm for life through film I'm starting this podcast because as a stay-at-home mom I know what it's like to have a thirst for knowledge but without the time to read and research So I thought that once a month, I would pick a movie and do all the research for y'all and read it to you, whether while on your drive to work or mowing the lawn or rocking a baby to sleep. I will cover each film with a detailed synopsis, information on the cast and crew, and its historical context, as well as cultural impact. April 2022's Movie of the Month is 1977's Looking for Mr. Goodbar, directed by Richard Brooks and starring Diane Keaton, Tuesday Weld, William Atherton, Richard Kiley, and a green Richard Gere in one of his first roles on screen. There is a trigger warning on this episode for sexual assault and violence against women. I will be going into great depth about each month's film, so pause this episode and watch Looking for Mr. Goodbar on YouTube now if you don't enjoy spoilers. A link is in the show notes. Welcome back, and I hope you enjoyed the movie. What does Teresa Dunn want? In her own words, everything. Looking for Mr. Goodbar is a portrait of boredom, self-destruction, Catholic guilt, and sexual repression at the end of what was supposed to be the Decade of the Dane. Diane Keaton's Teresa, a recent college graduate and ex-professor's assistant slash mistress, teaches deaf children, is self-conscious of a back surgery scar from a childhood turned upside down by polio, and lives under the pressure of her traditional Catholic family. Teresa's sister Catherine, played by Tuesday Weld, meets her swinging husband while south of the border, procuring an abortion only to need another one as well as a divorce before the end of the movie. But before she leaves her husband and delivers a camp eulogy that includes my favorite line of the movie, here lies love and lies and lies and lies. Catherine hooks Teresa up with an apartment in the building her husband owns so that Teresa can escape from her stifling family home. At work, Teresa takes a special interest in a young black student named Amy, who can't afford a hearing aid. She walks her home one day after school where she meets a social worker named James, played by William Atherton, and Teresa goes out with him to successfully plead the case for her student's hearing aid. James wants to see Teresa again. He even charms her family with his Irish Catholic ways, but Teresa is indifferent to him and he starts to stalk her. Teresa meets the oversexed and strung out hustler Tony, played by Richard Gere, at the bar where she's reading The Godfather, a coincidental nod to Keaton's role as Kay Corleone in the 1972 film adaptation of the novel, after which Tony shows off his erratic and dangerous side, play threatening Teresa with a knife only one of many instances of the film's use of foreshadowing. Tony finds out Teresa is a school teacher and jokes, St. Teresa by day and Swing and Terry by night. She delights in their childish and free relationship, gleefully quipping back, I did, when Tony taunts, kiss my ass. Teresa starts dabbling in drugs and buying cocaine at the club and going home with strange men, including one guy who watches porn on TV the entire time he has sex with her. Maybe more satisfying than any scene of lovemaking, Teresa even gets the opportunity to reject the professor who dumped her at the beginning of the movie for his now ex-wife. Warning Teresa with a menacing phone call of, you asked for it, bitch, 
Tony sticks the cops on Teresa's apartment, and she's arrested for possession. The next day, her gorgeous headshot is on the cover of the newspaper with a headline, Teacher Leads Double Life, Savior by Day, Sexist by Night, and she loses her job. James creepily waits outside of Teresa's apartment when she gets home, where he gifts her a film projector for Christmas. While testing out the gift, Teresa rejects him one last time, and he freaks out, breaking things and saying lame stuff like, Last election, did you even fucking vote? You got one thing. Me. Later at her family's house, Mr. Dunn throws an equally loud fit about Teresa's lifestyle, finally asking her point blank why she doesn't want to have children. She reveals that she knows that her childhood polio is just a story to explain her surgery and scarring. She knows that she really has congenital scoliosis. Mr. Dunn recalls his sister who also suffered from it, resulting in her suicide. Tell me, girl, how do you get free of the terrible truth, he asks. New Year's Eve, James is creeping on Teresa at the bar, so she flirts with a stranger played by Tom Berenger and takes him home. Berenger's character is a self-loathing gay felon who, when unable to perform in the bedroom, and Keaton laughs and asks, what are you trying to prove, rapes and stabs her to death in the flickering blue light of the projector James gave Teresa for Christmas. Her small, illuminated face disappears into blackness. The end. That's the movie adaptation of Looking for Mr. Goodbye. But for once, truth isn't stranger than fiction. In New York City in 1973, Roseanne Quinn was 28 years old, a year younger than me at the time of this recording when she took home a stranger from a bar for a one-night stand. Instead, she was sexually assaulted with a candle and stabbed 18 times by a man named John Wayne Wilson. The murder and speculation about Quinn's personal life became front-page news, inspiring Judith Rosner to write the novel Looking for Mr. Goodbar, which was published in 1975. I will preface this by saying that I did not read Rosner's Looking for Mr. Goodbar in preparation for this podcast, but you can, it is available to read digitally on the Internet Archive, and I will link a copy in the show notes. But anyway, according to Rosner's obituary, appearing at a moment when doubts were setting in about the benefits of 1960s-style sexual license and packed with jarringly explicit sex scenes culminating in the main character's murder, the book proved spectacularly successful. It sold more than 4 million copies. Because of the book's popularity, Rosner was able to quit her day job to write full-time, but Goodbar remained her most successful outing as a novelist. The theme, she said, was, is it okay for women to go screwing around in big cities just because the new morality says it's okay? Although she made good money selling the film rights, Rosner had nothing to do with the film's production and openly detested it upon its release. After a screening, a Washington Post reporter quoted Rosner as saying, I'd like to get out of here without having to talk to the producer. She added, I feel like the mother who delivered her 13-year-old daughter to the door of Roman Polanski and didn't know what was going to happen. The director Richard Brooks, who most know best for directing classic movies like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and In Cold Blood, also wrote the screenplay for Looking for Mr. Goodbar, he is also known for successfully bridging the gap and working both in Golden Age, Studio System Era Hollywood, and the new Hollywood of the late 60s and 70s. 
He considered himself a writer first and foremost, even warning the cast and crew of Good Bar on their first day on set. I'm sure that all of you have your own ideas about what kind of contribution you can make to this film, what you can do to improve it or make it better. Keep it to yourself. It's my fucking movie and I'm going to do it my way. Whether this was to the film's advantage or detriment is debatable. Goodbar holds a 62% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but my favorite critics of the time were less than impressed with the adaptation while holding Keaton's performance above reproach. Pauline Kael said that the film was splintered, moralistic, and tedious. Roger Ebert argued that Richard Brooks strayed too far from the source material, writing, Maybe Brooks thought audiences would find Rosner's masochistic heroine too hard to understand. He has rewritten the story, in any event, into a cautionary lesson. Promiscuous young women who frequent pickup bars and go home with strangers are likely to get into trouble. I do love this movie for Keaton's performance and the horror-like editing, but also feel it's regressive in that Teresa's fate mirrors that of female protagonists in films made during the production code era in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s, not during the new Hollywood of the 1970s. While Looking for Mr. Goodbar was based on a true story, the film's arc mimics those of earlier pictures, where characters could be violent, sexual, and vulgar, so long as they either die or perform a self-sacrificing act of contrition by the end of the movie. A great example is Anne Dvorak's absentee mother, deserting wife, and dope fiend in 1932's Three on a Match, which I would have given a spoiler alert for, but it's 90 years old and there's no way things could have ended well for Dvorak's sinful character. Anyway, Roger Ebert also made a counter-argument to mine. Praising the film for its progressive leading lady, he says, Keaton's performance creates a character who would have been unthinkable in the movies of 30 years ago. A young woman who spends her days teaching first grade to a classroom of deaf mutes and her nights making herself available in single bars. Women weren't allowed to be that complicated in the women's pictures that Mr. Goodbar has come such a long way from. They were ladies, or they were tramps. Now they're allowed to be both, which has done wonders for the quality of the tramps you meet these days. The movie received two Academy Award nominations, Tuesday Weld for Best Supporting Actress as Keaton's Swinging Sister, and William Fraker for Best Cinematography, who expertly juxtaposes the neutral colors and drab natural lighting of Teresa's day-to-day -day life with the pulsating colors of New York nightlife and shadowy apartments where danger lurks in our own beds. However, we don't really know the extent of his work because there are no high-definition or restored copies available to watch at home, whether legally or not. It was Weld's only Oscar nomination and one of Fraker's six. Weld lost to Vanessa Redgrave for Julia, which I think is fair, and Fraker lost to Vilnos Zygmunt for Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Keaton was nominated the same year, and won Best Actress for her more light-hearted performance in Woody Allen's neurotic rom-com, Annie Hall. Online sources speculate that the dramatic turn in Looking for Mr. Goodbar gave her an edge in the awards race because the contrasting roles impressed Academy voters with her range as an actress. Based on the film's reputation, I had mentally prepared myself for Nymphomaniac Volume 2, and Teresa's sexual exploration seemed tame in comparison. While the psychosexual aspects of the movie didn't live up to the hearsay, the final scene's lighting and giallo-like bloodshed did, 
The bright blue strobing light and equally bright red blood mimic the color palettes of Italian horror maestros, and I encourage anyone with an interest in new Hollywood history, psychosexual dramas, and true crime to check out Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Haven't you ever heard of the sexual revolution? Who won, huh? Nobody. Used to be sex was the only free thing. No longer. Alimony, palimony, it's all financial. Love's an illusion. It's the only illusion that counts, my friend. Says who? Anyone who's ever been in love. Love sucks. That was Andrew McCarthy and Emilio Estevez's characters bantering in the 1985 movie St. Elmo's Fire, which is not my recommended double feature for looking for Mr. Goodbar, but the exchange does capture the theme of the double feature. No one wins the sexual revolution. My recommended movie to watch alongside Looking for Mr. Goodbar is the 1971 dramedy Carnal Knowledge, directed by Mike Nichols and starring Jack Nicholson, Art Garfunkel, Anne Margaret, and Candace Bergen, as well as an unforgettable scene with Oscar winner Rita Moreno. The movie takes place in the mid-20th century, beginning in the 1940s and ending in present-day 1970s. The story charts the love lives of two college roommates. Sandy, played by Art Garfunkel, is soft-spoken and submissive, and Jonathan, played by Jack Nicholson, probably considers himself an alpha male. Sandy puts women on a pedestal. Jonathan debases them. Despite their differences in personality, because of their selfish and narrow-minded attitudes towards women and sex, neither of them finds satisfaction in their relationships. To quote the message scrawled on Ryan Gosling's skin in The Nice Guys, they will never be happy. In contrast to the very deadly consequences of Mr. Goodbar, the moral of carnal knowledge isn't, if you sleep around, you might get murdered. It's more like, if you sleep around and treat women like objects, you might be a sad boy in the long run. To quote film critic Christina Newland, when women join the sexual revolution, dubiously following the footsteps of men, they must suffer the gravest of consequences. That being said, Carnal Knowledge is a great movie in its own right, and probably a much more realistic portrayal of how personal and sexual relationships changed in the mid-20th century, without the sensationalism of looking for Mr. Goodbar's Good Girl Gone Bad narrative and notorious ending. the movie of the month club my name is genevieve radosti and you can find me online on twitter and instagram at at jenny radosti g-e-n-n-y-r-a-d-o-s-t-i or my website genevieveradosti.com feel free to rate and review this podcast and share it with anyone who loves deep dives into movies and their history join us at the private movie of the month facebook group at www.facebook.com slash group slash movie of the month club and let us know what you think about looking for Mr. Goodbar. <laughs>